Howdy folks, this is Jimmy Aiken with a special message as we approach the Christmas season. This past year, the StarQuest Network has continued to expand our mission of exploring the intersection of faith and pop culture through our many entertaining and informative programs. Here on Mysterious World, we've recently added video to the podcast, and we need to continue improving it with better cameras, lights, and editing, as well as continuing to produce our weekly look at the fascinating mysteries you enjoy. That's why it's very important that we hear from you this Advent and Christmas, the time when nonprofits receive most of their support for the year. If you're already a supporter of StarQuest, we thank you, and we ask you to consider increasing your support if you're able. If you're not yet a supporter, please become one. Every gift counts. Whatever level of support you can offer, please show your support for SQPN this Christmas, and remember, your gifts may be tax-deductible. To find out more, just go to sqpn.com slash give. That's sqpn.com slash give. May God bless you this Advent, and may you have a blessed Christmas season. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com. A-A-R-O-N-V.com. Making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. You're listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. I'm Dom Bethanelli, and I'm joined today by Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. This is an episode that we recorded previously to thank our patrons at patreon.com slash StarQuest for their generosity in making this and all our shows at StarQuest possible. We gave them early exclusive access, but now we're sharing it with you to show you one of the benefits of being a patron. Be sure to stick around to the end for your mysterious feedback on our recent episode on our psychic testing and as well as mysterious headlines. But first, please enjoy the show. We're always looking for ways to thank you, our patrons, for your generosity in making all our shows on StarQuest possible. And this is one of those ways. We reached out to you and asked if you had questions you'd like to ask, and we got many great responses. And that's what we'll be talking about in this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, let's jump right into the questions. The first question comes from Jack Barzini, our very own host of the Secrets of Stargate, who is also a patron, who asks, what is the morality of a situation where a small amount of humanity was to survive in an apocalyptic scenario and genetic diversity would be best preserved by people having children by multiple partners? Okay, so let's first think about what kind of scenario this would involve. Um, Now... Genetic diversity is normally passed on, you know, when a male passes on his genes and a female passes on her genes. And there's a difference between the sexes in that women, females are in any population that whether human or not, any population that has sex, um, meaning gender, is limited or at least in among mammals, the limiting factor is females because uh, they have more of an investment biologically in the child. Um, Mammalian species need to carry their young within them. They can't just lay their eggs and split. And um, so as a result, uh, men, males in mammalian species, 
can impregnate multiple females and thus pass on their genetic diversity, but but females are only able to have uh, pass on their genetic diversity in a more limited way. A man can have more children than a woman can. And so any situation that would push us in the direction of polygamy, having more than one spouse, <clears throat> would have to be one where men were disproportionately affected. Uh, so you've had lots of men killed off. And the way to maximize genetic diversity would then be to have the few males that remain mate with multiple females. So we'd be talking about the form of polygamy known as polygyny, which is where a man has multiple wives, as opposed to the opposite polyandry where a woman would have multiple husbands. if uh, So that would be the kind of situation we were talking about, something that killed off bunches and bunches of men. And in order to retain the genetic diversity that still exists in the male population, someone could propose this. Well, how would it square with uh, Christian teaching? The Council of Trent addressed this. Uh, in the 1500s, there actually was a discussion of polygamy that happened because one of the uh, German um, landgraves named Philip of Hesse uh, was like wanted to have more than one wife and ended up doing so. And also some people suggested that this could be a solution for Henry VIII's problem in finding an heir. There's no explicit command in the Bible not to take more than one wife. Uh, there is a saying of Jesus where he talks about uh, how God's original model for marriage was Adam and Eve, so not Adam, not Adam and Eve and Barbara. Um, and he, Jesus is applying that to the situation of divorce, but you can also say, well, it should also apply then to the situation of polygamy. And polyg uh, monogamy is clearly the optimal design for our species because we're born in equal numbers, you know, you at least approximately equal uh, as many male babies as female babies, and it's going to cause problems if and has historically caused problems if you have some of the men hogging the women. You know, that's going to get that's going to disturb the other men <laughs> and it can lead to problems. Um, so monogamy is clearly the the overall the best thing for our species, and it's historically been the most common. Uh, but. Um, it's polygamy is not explicitly condemned in scripture. So when you had Philip of Hesse and Henry VIII on the scene in the 1500s, this got discussed in both Protestant and Catholic communities. And the Council of Trent then uh, issued a canon uh, on this in which it said, if anyone says that it is lawful for Christians to have several wives at the same time, and that it is not forbidden by any divine law, let him be anathema. And so, you know, that's ever since Trent, that's been taken as, okay, no, 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 no polygamy. Um, but notice the way it's phrased. It doesn't just say this is intrinsically sinful. It says that one is not allowed to claim that it is not forbidden by any divine law. 
And someone could look at that and say, okay, well, maybe it's forbidden by a divine law that applies in, say, most circumstances, but maybe divine law doesn't prohibit it in certain extreme circumstances. And they even, in fact, may be thinking of the fact that God seemed to accept polygamy in the Old Testament, you know, and and didn't have a problem with it then, so didn't, you know, indicate a problem with it then. So maybe divine law doesn't, maybe the divine law regulating this doesn't apply to absolutely every circumstance. So if we were in this kind of situation, and if... Uh, Christians and particularly Catholics were going to maximize genetic preservation of genetic diversity in this way, there would have to be a doctrinal development on that point to square this somehow. Uh, On the other hand, there are other options. Christians or non-Christians are not bound by this. Uh, They have only natural marriages. And so um, the sacramental divine law that applies to Christian marriages wouldn't apply to them. They wouldn't particularly, being non-Christians, they're not really going to care what Christians are doing with their marriages anyway, necessarily. Um, And so they might pass on genetic diversity in this manner. But then there's a whole other way of, of, of preserving genetic diversity, which is archiving DNA and using gene editing like CRISPR to, re, to reintroduce it later uh, through non-reproductive means. So if you've gotten a population that survived but has very low genetic diversity so that it could be, say, wiped out by a virus or something, then you could edit in uh, banked DNA to introduce new alleles into the population so that it becomes more genetically diverse more quickly. Interesting. Wow. We'll also have a link to an article on polygamy and Christianity so people can read more about all that. The great thing about these questions is you think it's, oh, it's straightforward. Yeah, of course not. And then you give us more to think about, which is what I love about that. Our next question comes from Megan Strickland, who says, uh, living in Tennessee, I've heard the story of the Bell Witch so many times I've lost count. My husband was raised on it and has read every book and account of the story. For those not familiar, the incredibly short version is that a ghost named Kate haunted the Bell family and ultimately killed the patriarch, John Bell, by poison. Jimmy and Dom, what are your thoughts on this story, and what could it mean from a theological standpoint of a ghost or demon, because it's always demons, could kill a person? Is this even remotely possible? Love the show and love a whole episode or even a two-parter on this Southern Ghost story. Well, uh, I have the Bell Witch on the list, so I plan to get to it eventually. Um, In terms of, uh, but I have not yet studied it in detail. In terms of could a ghost kill a person or a demon kill a person? Well, in the book of Tobit, we have the demon Asmodeus that is killing off this woman's husbands as she acquires them. And so uh, we also have in the New Testament demons doing things like causing epileptic fits and trying to throw an epileptic boy when he has the fits into fire or things like that. And if demons can cause epileptic fits, they, you know, if you're in the wrong situation, you could die. Like if you fall off a cliff or down a staircase or out of a window or something like that. So I don't see any problem in principle, with it being possible for a demon to kill a person. In terms of a ghost, if you go back and listen to our episode on the Border Patrol ghost, 
Um, the it looks like the border patrol ghost tracks down his uh, killer and gets extrajudicial justice. Um, now that's we don't know precisely what happened. It could be that he was just going to scare the uh, coyote that killed him, and the coyote then falls over a cliff through his own fault. Or it could be something more than that. Um, you know, God does not have a problem in principle with administering justice to killers. And so I can't preclude the exact ways this might happen. Uh, also, I'm aware of situations with poltergeists. And because I've been researching poltergeists lately, I'm aware of situations with poltergeists where they attempt or actually succeed in doing harm to people. Um there is a question, though, about what poltergeists actually are. Traditionally, they have been understood either as demons or as the ghosts of departed humans. But more recent research has indicated that instead of that, they might be telekinetic in origin. That um, Because one of the things they found with poltergeists is there tends to be a single person that the activity is focused around, usually a young person and mm. like a teenager and it has been proposed that this may be because teen, being a teenager can be very stressful uh for some folks and um it can be a very stressful time of life and one of the proposals is what poltergeists actually are is spontaneous uh psychokinesis that is being subconsciously manifested by what's known as the poltergeist agent the person that's causing the poltergeist phenomena. And so if you have uncontrolled uh, psychokinetic abilities that are subconsciously manifesting your frustrations and throwing heavy objects around, well, yeah, that could that could hurt somebody and potentially mm -hmm. even kill them. Um, so there, I don't view any of these things as being intrinsically impossible. That's not to say that they're at all likely, uh, but they are proposals that are out there, and we will be talking about them, including in relation to the Bell Witch. Excellent. Bill and Joanna Martell uh, write, Jimmy and Dom, we'd love a session on the mystery of the city of Troy. Central to the history myths of Greece, Rome, and Britain, as well as some of the most enduring literature of the Western world, did this city exist? Where was it? Did the Great Trojan War take place? And if so, when? Is there any historicity to the players of the great Iliad, Odyssey, and Aeneid? Does imagery from the events at Troy inform Christian thought in its earliest formation? In regard to the last question, I don't know how much uh, the Trojan War informed Christian thought. Obviously, uh, Christianity emerged in a context where Greek culture was very influential in the Roman Empire. I mean, even the Romans were speaking Greek. Uh, even though they had Latin as their own language. Greek was the international language. Greek culture was highly prestigious. And a key part of Greek culture w were the Iliad and the Odyssey, the uh, poems by Homer. And um, and so lots of early Christians would have known those. I wouldn't be surprised if there are references to them in the Church Fathers, although I've never looked that up. Also, the Romans had hooked their own national epic into the Trojan War via the Aeneid, where uh, Aeneas ends up being one of the kind of not exactly the founder of Rome because, you know, Romulus and Remus, but nevertheless, 
you know, led to the founding of Rome. And so, you know, it's all wrapped up in the same cultural matrix. I haven't traced specific allusions. Um, in terms of did Troy exist? Well, for many centuries, or I don't know many centuries, but for for quite a while, uh, scholars were skeptical of that and said no. They thought that um, that the Iliad, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and the other legends we know about the Trojan War, because it wasn't just the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, that it was it was all just early Greek myth and didn't really have any historical counterpart. But in the 19th century, a uh, German named Heinrich Schliemann uh, investigated this and concluded that Troy did exist. And he used clues in the ancient literature to identify its site. And that site is a place known at today as Hisserlich. Hisserlik is in Turkey. It's on the border of the Mediterranean Sea, which you would need because you've got to sail your ships to Troy. It needs to be a border city. I mean, a, a seacoast city. Um, and um, and generally today it's accepted in archaeology that, yeah, uh, Schliemann was right. And Hisserlik is the site of the historical Troy. There have been archaeological studies done on it. In fact, just earlier this year, in August of 2021, a group of archaeologists claim they found a structure that may actually be the Trojan horse. Um, and we'll have a link to that, as well as links to Heinrich Schliemann and the site of Troy. Um, now, that's also been disputed that they found the Trojan horse. And this may be the Greek equivalent of people claiming every few years to have found Noah's Ark when really they haven't. Um, but uh, it, it is uh, taken seriously that Troy was a real place and that the Greek literature may preserve authentic memories of a war between the, you know, the the Greek culture and Troy, uh, because, you know, you had Greeks coming from different places. It wasn't just one body of them. Um, and then beyond that, how historical individual figures like Odysseus or Achilles um, or um, Paris or Egypt, Paris yeah. or Helen <laughs> may be, yeah. um, that's something that would I don't know that there's an established opinion on. They may or may not have different levels of historicity, but that's a question I haven't investigated yet. Mm. John Henry asks, I'm now reading the Old Testament to the kids, and they're asking me about how to reconcile God's harshness with his kindness. How can he command stoning for adulterers and then during his incarnation tell people to only cast stones if they have no sin? How can he want us to fear him and love him at the same time? How can he give such harsh laws of justice to people in ancient times and then command us today to be meek and patient with the wrongs others do to us? How is it that forgiveness is the fulfillment of the law and not its abolition? I have some answers, but I'm finding that what I have isn't quite satisfactory, and some of the other answers I've come across seem downright wrong. Any good books or talks or essays on this topic you might suggest? Well, there's kind of a lot there. Um, a couple of books that you might find useful in this regard are Hard Sayings by Trent Horn and Dark Passages by Matthew Ramage. Uh, both of them are Catholic attempts to wrestle with some of this kind of material. In terms of, um, uh, in terms of answering the questions at least briefly here, and Dom, you may need to help me to make sure I don't forget any, um, but... One of the things that Jesus makes very clear 
in the Gospels, and this shows up particularly in, in Matthew 19, is that God tolerated the Israelites doing certain things that he didn't fully approve of because he he had chosen them as his people, but they hadn't yet been cultured in his ways. And so he's dealing with people at a very low state of uh, catechetical formation, and he therefore allows them to have as part of their law legal practices that don't fully reflect God's will, but he's willing to work with them. It's kind of like today, you know, there are lots of politicians who claim to be Christian who nevertheless support abortion. Well, okay, it's, you know, we thus have to kind of tolerate this for now while we work towards its abolition. And God did something similar. He tolerated practices that the early Israelites weren't ready to give up yet, and then over the course of time educated them in his ways. And Jesus cites uh, allowing men to divorce their wives as an example of this. So the Mosaic legislation said if you if a man divorces his wife, he's got to write her a, a bill of divorce so she can prove she's no longer married to him. But really, God doesn't want people abandoning their spouses. And so we see this and we see other examples, too, like um, the uh, there was a proverbial saying in ancient Israel that the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, meaning the fathers have sinned and now their children are being punished for it. And the prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah are all over that saying, no, 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 this is not God's way. The only the person who sins is going to experience punishment. You may experience suffering if you didn't sin, but that's not the same as being punished. So even though early Israelites conceptualized punishment as spanning generations, including innocent generations, God makes it clear over time that is not his way. And so when we look at some of these laws, like stoning adulterers, well, that's how people in the ancient world felt about things. Um, and you know, they had honor killings and things like that. And essentially, uh, stoning adulterers is a form of honor killing. And they had a very highly honor-based culture. And God was willing to let this happen for now, but it doesn't reflect the fullness of his will. So when Jesus comes, he then says, okay, let the one who has no sin cast the first stone. Now, that doesn't mean you never punish people. But it does mean that in some circumstances, it's appropriate not to, to show mercy. And so that's another thing to take into account. When you're listening to Jesus' statements in the New Testament, he's talking on an individual level. He's not talking about running a society, because in a society, there has to be punishment for some things. There has to be a criminal justice system. But that doesn't mean we as individuals need to be the agents of that or need to inflict the punishment ourselves. That's something that should be left in general to the state um, or to the competent authority. You know, like within a family, the parents get to decide when punishment is needed and when it's not. So um, so those are some things that may help. Uh, with understanding some of this. Um, also, forgiveness is not the fulfillment of the law. Love is. 
And love can mean forgiveness at times, but it can also mean holding someone accountable at times. So the situation is not simply forgive everybody and not never hold them accountable for what they've done. Um, let's see. Fear and love. Yeah. Oh, yes. Thank you. Um, so fear is a it, when the Old Testament talks about fearing God, like, you know, Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not thinking of fear the way we do. Um, we're th- we think of fear as as uh, as terror as an emotion that's very negative and has no positive aspect when um when the Old Testament authors are talking about fear, they mean re- what we would call reverence. Because if you are revering someone like a king, well, you're aware that the king has power over you, and thus you need to treat him with respect for that reason, among others. And in and really, when you read about the fear of the Lord, what what it means is not being terrified of God. What it means is having reverence for God. Excellent. Uh, next, Nick Wan asks, which mystery on the mysterious to do list are you most excited to get to? Well, it varies from time to time. By the way, I like that, the mysterious to-do list, (laughs) um, which has like 1,700 entries on it, although we've done about 200 of them now, so I guess there's about 1,500 left. Um, At this point, it's always growing. Uh, It it varies over time what I'm most excited to do, and oftentimes it's whatever I've just done. Uh, I'm most excited to record it and get it out there. In terms of some that... um, that uh, I'm currently and actually for a long time have been excited to do, but haven't yet because of the complexity of the cases are the uh, the Zodiac Killer uh, from the late 60s and, and 70s. Um, he actually only killed like five people, but um, but it's a fascinating case and a very complex one. And so even though I've done some work on turning that into scripts, I haven't found exactly the right balance yet, uh, in part because it's complex enough. If we go through the suspects, it could be like a three-parter. Mm. And so, and I don't like doing three-part true crime. I, I tend to avoid three-parters in general, and especially a three-parter of true crime. Um, so I'm working on that. What we might have is an initial one or two-parter laying out what the public knew about Zodiac and then wait a while and come back and say, okay, now that you've heard the facts, let's apply them to the suspects and see who pops out. Um, Another one though, which is also involves a lot of really rich, fascinating stuff is the 1890s um, airship mystery. In the 1890s, there were these mystery airships that started showing up in California and in Texas and in other states. And some people have looked at them and said, oh, early UFOs. Well, no, but not not extraterrestrial UFOs anyway, but there's some really interesting stuff to get into there. And uh, and I'm I'm very much looking forward to doing the 1890s mystery airships. And that also may be one that gets broken up 
in more than one segment because of how they appeared so many places and there are so many different stories about them. Um, but I need to, I need to figure out a way to present that. Mm. Um, also one thing that, uh, and uh, that I've been interested in like lately and is going on right now, I've mentioned on the show or at least in an episode that'll be releasing soon that I have kind of a long-term oral history project I want to do with, um, with uh, people connected with the Stargate psychic spying program, either people on the civilian side or people on the military side. Um, we started that with Paul Smith and did a two-parter with him. I've subsequently done some additional interviews that we'll be sequencing. We're not going to put them all together in a big bunch because I, I want to keep a mix of topics. But just lately, I've had this huge rush of uh, of of interview requests being granted or people being put in touch with me and say hey um Jimmy's a good interviewer maybe you should talk <laughs> to him and um so it hasn't all been me approaching others sometimes it's been other people facilitating uh these but i have all of a sudden all these interview possibilities with people connected with the program and so I'm going to do I'm going to strike while the iron is hot and get them recorded um, and then figure out how to space them out over the next number of months. So we and we've got a lot of interesting stuff coming up in those, but we may have a kind of regular monthly check in with Stargate for a while as I process those interviews, because I don't want to let them slip through the cracks. Cool. I would say that the ones I look forward to, there are some classic ones like, you know, the Lost Ark of the Covenant, the Shroud of Turin, that sort of thing. Uh, I love the UFO ones. Uh, there was one I heard recently, I think a listener had mentioned, which I hadn't heard about before, but this idea that b before industrialization, that there were these diaphanous creatures living in the upper atmosphere mm -hmm. that were killed off by pollution before we ever were able to fly high enough to get up there. Uh, it's, it was a kind of a fa it sounds very sci-fi to me, uh, but it's kind of a fascinating idea. That's actually referenced in one of our upcoming questions. I don't know if we'll get to it today or not, though, but it's oh, in this question list. Excellent. Excellent. OK, I forgot that it was a <laughs> it was a patron question. So let's get we'll get to that in a second then. Uh, so let's continue on. Rob Leonardi asks, uh, in regards to natural prophecy or if it's real remote viewing, would someone with aphantasia be more susceptible to, for the lack of a better term, tuning in while sleeping than others as compensation, such as hearing gets better if sight is lost? So the idea that when someone loses one sense, their others amplify is definitely out there. I mean, you hear that a lot. The concept is called sensory compensation. I don't know what the evidence, I haven't studied the scientific evidence in detail about to what extent sensory compensation is real. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, if you go blind, you're going to start using your hearing for more things. But does your hearing actually get better or are you just using it differently is a different question. Um, this concept actually goes back to the ancient world. Um, for example, uh, in Greek mythology, there's a figure known as Tiresias who is blind, but in in compensation for his blindness, he's given second sight. So he's he, he doesn't have his first sight, but he's got second sight. So he's a blind prophet. And you see similar stories in, elsewhere. Um, aphantasia, for uh, those who may not be familiar, is the 
is a condition that some people have where they don't naturally form mental images of things. Um, so like for most people, and they tend not to realize this, they think people around them are using metaphors. So if I say, picture yourself in the middle of a field and you're smelling the the breeze and the flowers and there's there are bees buzzing around, most people will imagine an image of them in a field, and they will imagine these other sensory experiences. They will imagine feeling the breeze and smelling the flowers and hearing the bees buzzing, and they imagine this sensory experience. Um, but aphantasiacs don't. Uh, they don't have these mental images that come to them, and they tend to grow up assuming that when people say things like, imagine you're in a field and so forth, that it's some kind of metaphor. Hmm. that other people are using and they don't mean it literally but no other people do mean it literally imagine this picture this in your mind's eye um and so what rob is asking is for, for people who are um who are aphantasiacs who don't have this mental image forming process um could that cut out some of the distraction that they might uh, that normal people would experience in using something like natural prophecy, which was St. Thomas Aquinas's term for precognition, um, like you, which could manifest and classically in Aquinas manifests in dreams. So like if you if you're an aphantasiac and you don't have these mental images, would that let you as when you're asleep, tune into the signal line of precognition better or Otherwise, could it help you tune into the signal line in remote viewing and get data about a distant target? Well, um, so you'd have to test it. Um, the, the only way to answer this question would be to test it empirically. Um, having said that, oh, uh, I, I will say something, but also we'll have links, by the way, to uh, an article on aphantasia and also a link to an article on aphantasia, imagination and dreaming. Because it turns out that even though aphantasiacs don't produce mental imagery when they're awake, they do when they're dreaming. So it so even if you're aphantasiac in waking life, it may not you may still have all the normal visual distractions everybody else does when they're dreaming. So you that's one reason to think you might not have an advantage. There's also another reason to think that aphantasiacs might not have an advantage, which is that some of and we'll be talking about this in some um Upcoming interviews I did with a parapsychologist named Edwin May, who is a physicist and has done a bunch of studies of uh, parapsychological phenomena. There is uh, there is some evidence to suggest that psychic functioning is correlated with a kind of hyperconnectivity in the brain, where different brain regions are cross connected with each other in unusual ways. And the idea is the more connections you have, the bigger your antenna may be or something for picking up the psychic signal. Um, and so given that aphantasiacs don't have normal image development in mental image development, they may lack some of this connectivity that is that most people have. 
the people who would have more brain connectivity would be people who have a different kind of weird sensory thing happening. Uh, and this is because one of the things Ed May, who ran the uh, civilian, he was like in charge of the civilian side of the Stargate program. And I asked him about this in his in the interview uh, that we'll be releasing with him. Um, some uh, I knew that some of his best remote viewers had a condition called synesthesia. And so I asked him about that. And in the interview, he said all of them did. Hmm. Now, synesthesia is a form of is a condition that various people have where they cross connect. So there's the hyperconnectivity. They cross connect different sensory modalities. Um, so, for example, they will associate letters and numbers with colors. So they may think, OK, red, A is red, B is orange, uh, E is brown, three is purple, four is sea green, things like that. Um, they also may associate sounds with colors or sounds with shapes and textures. And they may listen to music and, you know, in their mind's eyes, see these shifting shapes and textures that go along with the music. They may have a variety of others. There's actually dozens of different types of synesthesia. And a, about 4% of the population is synesthetic. And so it turns out that hyperconnectivity which may be the opposite of aphantasia, may actually be correlated with higher psychic functioning. Now, since I've mentioned it before, and I know some of the audience will be aware of this and will be curious, I am a synesthete. Um, I have actually several forms of synesthesia. One of them is what's called grapheme color synesthesia, where you associate letters and numbers with colors. In fact, all of the colors I just named in association with letters and numbers, those are from my personal synesthesia. Hmm. Um, I also have other forms of synesthesia, um, some of which I've only recently identified. Um, but I was uh, in an email discussion with an author who's an expert on synesthesia, and I was describing my internal experiences to her. And she said, oh, you are a polysynesthete. You've got lots of interesting stuff going on. <laughs> um, so yeah, I have multiple forms of this and hypothetically, if I were a practiced remote viewer, I might function, I might function better than average. On the other hand, I might not. So I don't know. Okay. T. Hazlitt asks, if you're really good at mental reservation or phrasing true statements in true order with omitted words to achieve a statement that is true, but not truthly. Does the desire to be misleading become the pivotal fulcrum for it being a sin, if it is a sin? My favorite example, uh, quote, I was at work yesterday. I love my job for the sake of my family. I'll work here when I have to for as long as possible until I get a better job. Thank you, sir. So um, whether or not this form of mental reservation counts as lying is going to depend on your definition of lying because it's it's defined different ways. Um, and there's not a single agreed upon way of defining it. Actually, a number of paper a number of years ago, I read a paper uh, that had a prototype theory of lying and a prototype uh, definition is one where you have certain characteristics that 
tend to be associated with, okay, if it's got most of these characteristics, we're going to put it in this class. But it's not a it's that's different than the kind of definition where you where you have a list of necessary and sufficient conditions. Um, so a bachelor, we have a necessary and sufficient condition definition for that. A bachelor is a man who is not married. Um, but and anything that fits unmarried man is going to fit the definition of a bachelor. Lying, though, is a little harder to uh, to get everyone to agree to. It's going to have things like there's deception involved and there's an intent to deceive and maybe it's done by by words, um, but maybe it's not. And so um, we have certain things that we would consider like, okay, a prototypical example of lying. Everyone would look at that and say, yeah, that's clearly lying. But then there are other examples that maybe not everybody would agree. To give another example to help maybe make it a little clearer, um, when we think of a bird, we have a prototype bird in mind. And in our culture, almost everybody thinks of something that's kind of like a robin or a sparrow or, you know, a blue jay or one of those little kind of birds you see in your yard. Those are the prototypical bird. You don't think penguin or ostrich. (laughs) <laughs> as as your first thought when you think of a bird. And so um, so there is an in linguistics, there's this thing known as a prototype definition where you're you're kind of you you judge something to belong to a certain category depending on its degree of similarity to a prototype case of that category. And so lying may be more like that. So partly it's going to depend on your theory of lying, on, on your definition of lying. Whether it's, whether it's morally permissible is then going to depend on your theory of lying. Is lying ever legitimate or not? People have different opinions on that. Um, some people would say it's okay to lie to Nazis at your door about the fact you're hiding Jews in your attic. Other people would say, no, you can't do that. Even if something's not Properly speaking, a lie, though, there can still be impermissible forms of deception that are not morally legitimate. In terms of mental reservation, one of the things that um, that Catholic moral theology recognizes, so mental reservation is when you, you what you're saying is technically true, but you're omitting something. And like, I love my job because it provides money for my family, but otherwise I loathe it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, well, uh, so that's an example of mental reservation. And the church recognizes that mental reservation can be legitimate. You don't have to tell everybody all of the relevant things all of the time. Um, there is a role, as the catechism says, for discreet speech and honoring people's privacy and things like that. And that's basically mental reservation where you're speaking discreetly and not telling everything you know. That is legitimate, but not always. There are situations where mental reservation is deceptive in a way that is not acceptable. And there are Catholic moralists historically would say there are ways where you're just really lying at this mm-hmm. point. Um, if you if if you are giving your words such an unexpected meaning that there's no way the person could possibly guess it. And you mean for them to 
have a view that is false as a result of what you're saying to them, then mental reservation becomes functional lying. And or at least you can argue that depending on your definition of a lie, whether it would then be permitted, though, is then going to depend on your theory of lying and whether lying would be justified in this circumstance. The seal of the confessional would be a kind of proper uh, mental reservation, you could say that. And attorney-client privilege and similar things mm -hmm. like that, yeah. In the secrets the Vatican keeps, you know, for private matters, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, KLB writes, what's the deal with COVID-19 and its variants and vax or no vax, man-made or natural? Why does one science say one thing and another another? Masks or no masks and all the studies that go with that, testing accuracy, et cetera, et cetera. Bishops and Pope for and bishops against. So just what is the bottom line here? Well, uh, I'll get to the bottom line in a moment. But preliminary to that, the church's competence deals with matters of moral teaching, not science. So the church has spoken to the morality of the available COVID vaccines and says they are not principally, they are not in principle morally objectionable. Uh, they're not necessarily the best that could have been developed from a moral perspective, but the way they were developed and manufactured does not prevent the faithful from being able to use them. Um, however, it, it even in the document where it talks about that, it says we're not judging the science here. So the science of are they effective and are they safe, that's for the scientists to say, not for the church to say, because it's not the church's area of expertise. The broad swath uh, the broadest swath of the scientific community has concluded that they are safe and effective. That's not to say they're always effective. No vaccine is always effective. That's not to say they're always safe. No vaccine is always safe. Um, but most, the, in fact, the large majority of people, the scientific studies indicate, will greatly benefit from having a much less chance of either getting COVID or uh, having serious illness or hospitalization or death if you get the vaccine. And they will not have, statistically speaking, comparable harms as a result of taking the vaccine. Um, having said that, you know, why is there a lot of diversity on this question? Well, the results of science are always provisional. And so we learn more over time. We knew we know more now than we did at the beginning of the pandemic. And also science is represented by scientists, some of whom have different levels and areas of competence and some of whom are going to be whackdoodle kooks and ideologues from any perspective you can think of. So you're going to have kooky whackdoodle ideologues who are against the COVID vaccine, and you're going to have kooky whackdoodle ideologues who are in favor of the COVID vaccine. And so the bottom line is we just got to do the best we can. We've had the church weigh in on the moral question. And in terms of the scientific questions, you got to take a step back and say, okay, what does the evidence look like to me? If you, if you have really good evidence that would dispute the majority findings, which involve studies with now millions of people, because millions of people have received the vaccine worldwide. I mean, hundreds of millions have received it. If there were bizarre, you know, really bad side effects, or if it just didn't work at all, those things should have shown up. 
statistically by this point. So you would need some pretty compelling evidence to overturn that. Um, now, having said that, I'm not commenting on, you know, on whether one should receive or not receive. I'm not addressing that issue. I'm just describing the state of the evidence, and it's for people to make their own determinations based on their own situation. What's the best thing for them and their family to do? Uh, then we have another question from Thomas Jose Maria Kitching, who says, Jimmy and Dom, I love you guys and have been listening for years. My question is not typical because you've already addressed it once, but with the benefit of elapsed time and hindsight, I'm really not satisfied. I can't help thinking that there's something intrinsically evil going on in relation to this COVID crisis. I can't explain it, but I think the Holy Spirit is speaking to me about it and has been from day one. It feels to me like sheep being separated from goats. After 18 months of watching this from the sidelines, I can't help thinking that this whole situation is about a controlled crash of currencies which haven't been viable for years, beginning when the U.S. temporarily printed money in 1971 to avoid returning France's gold held since World War II, and years before when other countries moved away from the gold standard. This is a controlled crash to avoid countries defaulting on debts in Zimbabwe-style inflation, one where billionaires are able to become trillionaires in the process while us plebes pay the bill. We're heading for cashless societies, digital currencies, digital IDs from vaccine passports, transhumanism, and a Chinese-style social credit system. I'm also concerned that this winter we'll see damaging antibody-dependent enhancement responses amongst the vaccinated, and that governments will spin this to sound like it was the unvaccinated that are to blame. Please tell me that I'm wrong, because I want to be wrong. Yours in Christ. Dear Thomas, you're wrong. So um, now you wanted me to tell you that. So that's what I told you. Now, let me see what I can do to back that up and to what degree I can back that up, because I stated it rather absolutely. But I'm going to have to give you some qualifiers. The first one is, you know, if the Holy Ghost is really telling you this, you should believe the Holy Ghost. However, how do you know it's the Holy Ghost? Uh, and one of the things that... Um, that uh, the New Testament points out is that not every spirit is of God, and therefore we should test the spirits to find out, are they from God or not? Um, this could be a spirit whose purposes are opposed to the Holy Ghost, and he wants you to buy into this mindset where all of this is a big sinister plot, and so you're you're being unduly suspicious of your fellow man and blaming them for things that, in fact, they're not actually guilty of, and denying yourself and other people various benefits that you would otherwise have. Um, and it this also could be preparation for leading you down some other ideological rabbit hole that would be destructive to you and or other people. So um, so I would say follow St. Paul's advice in 1 Thessalonians 5, test everything and then hold fast to what is good. But don't just assume because you're having these thoughts that it's the Holy Ghost speaking to you. I would say, okay, if it's the Holy Ghost speaking to you, ask for some confirmation. Like, to be led to actual solid evidence and not just rumors and internet gossip, 
but actual solid evidence that these claims are true and not just speculation. I mean, you're going to have to use critical thinking. That's what it means to test everything, to not just assume what you're being told is true, but to actually check it out. Um, Similarly, uh, maybe the Holy Ghost could give you a sign, uh, something that is... uh, very unexpected to happen because if you pick something expected, you know, oh, it's going to be hot tomorrow or it's going to be cold tomorrow. Well, okay, that's not a good sign because that had a good likelihood of happening anyway. How about I go out on my lawn and there is a long lost relative I never expected to see and they came without calling first? You know, not necessarily that, but something that's very improbable, if you want to say, is confirmation of this is coming from the Holy Ghost. And you want to you want to also look at this and say, if it's the Holy Ghost telling me this, why would he be doing that? How is this going to help me? Is this going to help me grow closer to God? Is this going to help in some other way? Or is this something that looks like it could actually damage my relationship with God or with other people. And so I, I I can say that from my perspective as an outsider, the various things you name are things that need to be watched out for. I mean, I mentioned regularly on Mysterious World that inflation is caused by the government because it is. That's the reason we have inflation. The government prints more money than the economy is able to grow in new goods and services. Um, I also think that we need to watch out for uh, for transhumanism. We did a whole episode on that for things like the Chinese style social credit system. We need there. There are dangers out there. But what's happened here is is you have. You're looking at a view that combines these multiple dangers in a way where there's no clear evidence that COVID is being used to bring this about. It's one thing to speculate and say, hmm, could some of these things happen as a result of COVID? Well, yeah, maybe. But do you have evidence that really this is going to happen on this? All of these things are going to happen and on a global scale and right now as a result of COVID? That seems much more speculative to me. And so I don't and, and some things like the you mentioned people having antibody dependent enhancement responses to the vaccine. That's not borne out by the statistical evidence. And we'll have a link to uh, info on from a ch- uh, children's hospital um, on ADE responses and why the COVID vaccine is not expected to produce them, um, given the evidence we have. I mean, like I said, this has been given to hundreds of millions of people. Rare reactions, the rare reactions are all going to be known already. And ADEs that lead to subsequent infection or worse infection, it doesn't seem to be part of them. So um, taking the evidence of of the reason perspective coupled with the faith perspective, I don't I think there are reasons to be concerned about the future and to watch the future. But I don't think I see good evidence here for the Holy Spirit is really telling you this stuff. I think it's more likely it's one's own concerns manifesting, or if there is anything supernatural going on here, it's it could be a spirit other than the Holy Spirit that just wants you to 
to be afraid. And as St. Paul says, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Excellent. Uh, Father Anthony says, Dear Jimmy, one, have you ever read any books by acclaimed Catholic sci-fi writer Gene Wolfe, specifically his magnum opus, The Book of the New Sun? There are lots of mysteries in those books and probably up your alley. I appreciate the recommendation, Father Anthony. I have read a little bit of Gene Wolfe and a little bit of the first book of the New Sun, The Torturer's Apprentice, if I recall correctly, but I have not read... Um, I've not read any complete ones. I've read things that are more like short stories and stuff, but I'll keep it in mind for the future. Two, how incorrupt are the incorruptible saints? Are there any recent saints who can be classified as incorruptible with today's scientific knowledge? From the point of view of faith, what do we do about saints in olden times who were considered incorruptible? Love the show. Thanks for all your hard work and interesting stories. Well, I haven't done a lot of research into incorruptibles yet. I do have it on the list, uh, the mysterious to-do list, and I do plan on doing an episode on incorruptibles in the future. Um, I would say that one thing to be aware of is even though a lot of people will look to incorruptibility as evidence of a person's sainthood, incorruptibility is not exclusive is number one is often not it, it doesn't mean they're pristine um it just means they don't have the normal level of corruption one might expect given how long they've been dead the other thing is it is not unique to to christian saints there are other people in the world who display degrees of incorruptibility based on what are presumably natural causes. I mean, it also could be, you know, hey, well, this person, even though they weren't a Christian, they died in God's grace and they were they were a friend of God. And so God's given them this gift of incorruptibility as well. Um, but there also are uh, natural things causes that can arrest the decay process. And as a result, the church doesn't look on this as a make or break thing. So we shouldn't make too much of incorruptibility one way or the other. Uh, corrupting, having your body corrupt after you die is not a sign that you're not a saint. And having your body not be as corrupt as you would expect is not an automatic sign that somebody is a saint. All right. Michael Hodges asks, will there be sports in heaven? And if there is, will there be no injuries? Because some sports like boxing and American football require intense physical contact. Well, this is kind of like, will we have pets in heaven? If you need sports in heaven to be happy, then you will have them. Um, having said that, you may not need them to be happy. On the other hand, we do continue to be physical entities. We will have our bodies after the resurrection. And if God gives you something, it's because he means you to use it. So we will have a function for our bodies. We will be able to do things with them. And some of those may be athletic in nature and they may involve sports. Um, it, given the lack of limitations that Jesus's body displays after his resurrection and the fact that we're told we're going to be like him suggests that we're going to have the equivalent of superpowers in heaven. And uh, I don't know, one of those superpowers may be invulnerability. So maybe if you have intense contact sports like boxing or football, you may not get hurt. Or even if your nerves are functioning 
you know, the way they do in this life. So there's some physical pain. You won't experience any kind of permanent eternal injury. Um, you're not going to be permanently benched on account of that or have, you know, permanent ringing in your ears or anything like that. Uh, so if we do have sports, which we may, we won't have to worry about it. And also um, attitudes regarding sports in heaven would be a bit different. Um, it could be like in Japan where they're rooting for a tie in a baseball game. Hmm. Um, you know, they don't want to see one team crush the other. At least that's the report I have of how baseball works in Japan. They're like wanting the two teams to tie. Um, on the other hand, in heaven, so it could be that. It could be we want to see both teams win and thus have a tie. Or it could be we want to see, literally, we want to see the best person win. And the person who doesn't have maximized athletic ability in a particular context, it's no shame not to lose because he did his best in heaven. And uh, it was still it was good to see him do his best. And it was good to see someone else do even better. And they're both winners in that sense. Nice. Mark Smothers asks, I was wondering if you all had any thoughts on the Philip experiment that was conducted in Ontario in 1972. The claim is that they created a ghost, but what do you think happened? I'd like to hear your take on it. Thanks for the great podcast and keep up the good work. We'll have a link to the Philip experiment so people can read more about it. Um, the psychiatrist or psychologist who was the head of this thought that the the results they got were produced by purely natural psychological phenomena. So they invented a ghost, they made up facts about a person known not to exist, and then they did seances, and they would find that the table would tip and things like that, um, and 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 the guy who was in charge of it all said, yeah, this is just ordinary, natural, psychological phenomena, there's not really a ghost here, um, but people can do things like table tipping subconsciously without even realizing it. Um, and forgive me if I'm forgetting the detail on, the, it may not have been literal table tipping, but there were things like that. And the guy in charge of it all thought that this is just natural. And it's possible. Um, in fact, a hypothesis, which we mentioned in our previous discussion of uh, seances, is that one explanation that both the British and the American Societies for Psychical Research started looking at back in the 1800s when they went to mediums uh, and were trying to use mediums to verify the survival hypothesis that we continue to exist after death, one of the things that they had to consider was could these ghostly personalities the mediums are talking to just be their imagination? Could they be constructs um, based on the social role of being a medium? And really what's happening is the person is just using psychic functioning to detect the information they're coming up with. Like if, if you come and you say, okay, tell me about my dead relative, how are they doing? And they come up with surprising information that they shouldn't naturally know about your dead relative. Maybe they're reading your mind and thinking they're reading the mind of your dead relative. And mm -hmm. so if you have this, let's invent a ghost thing, it could be the same thing. It could be that Philip, the ghost in this case, is just another one of these constructs. And if Philip comes up, 
with any information that he shouldn't have naturally or that the group shouldn't have naturally. Maybe it's psychic functioning that's happening, but being attributed to this constructed ghost personality. Or maybe you've got an impersonator on your hands. Maybe you came up with Philip and a, a different ghost showed up and said, oh, yeah, I'm Philip. I'll tell you whatever you want to know. Let's have some fun. Or <laughs> maybe it's demons because it's always demons. It's always demons. <laughs> uh, and then Elizabeth Bauman asks, in a few months, I'm going to be hopefully donating a kidney to my husband. I'm inclined to believe that in the resurrection, my body will have the scar, at least, since Jesus's resurrected body has his scars and probably only one kidney. But will my husband's resurrected body have my donated kidney or will he just have his original kidneys? I'm inclined to think it depends on what he does with my kidney once he has it. It's the answer to this question is we don't know. Uh, we can speculate on the different possibilities, but ultimately we don't know. And one of the reasons for that is the cells in our body change out over time. I mean, you sometimes hear that all the cells in your body change out over a seven-year period. Well, that's not really true, but they do change out. And, uh, and you know, they die, they get removed, they die in a process called apoptosis, which is actually important for good health. You want cells to die when they start to senesce and stop functioning properly so they don't turn into cancer among other things mm -hmm. um, and so you you want the cells in your body to change out over time so actually the cells in your kidney that you have today are not the same ones that you had when you were two years old and so in it, it, it's like the ship of theseus which is a famous problem in philosophy, um, Theseus has a ship, but he it, over time it gets repaired and renovated one plank at a time, so that eventually none of the original planks are in this are in the ship. So, is it really the same ship anymore? And when it comes to a kidney, we have something similar. It's kind of the kidney of Theseus. Um, you know, so what your body would have on Resurrection Day is something we can speculate about. But unfortunately, we really can't answer the question. But it's interesting to think about the possibilities. Excellent. So I think that's about all we have time for today. But we still have more patron questions, and we're saving them. We'll, we'll, we'll address those in an, another patron's special episode. So that was a great episode, Jimmy. But let's get to our mysterious feedback. As I said, it's on our recent episode where we did some psychic testing. Our first feedback comes from Mary, who sent an email. I love, love, love the podcast. I recently read a book by someone in the Catholic Charismatic Movement who said he and his team often pray over a list of names of people who will be, who will be attending his conferences. He claims they often receive words or images that tell them what some of the people might be seeking prayers for. Often they receive information they could not have guessed or known otherwise. It got me thinking about psychic powers and remote viewing in relation to the charismatic gifts. I believe in the char charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit, but could these people also be just tapping into some kind of natural psychic ability? I would love for you to dive into the charismatic gifts sometime on your podcast. There are many stories of healings, speaking in tongues, and other miraculous experiences, but it seems like they only happen among amazing saints or people heavily involved in the Pentecostal or charismatic movements. Keep up the good work on the podcast. I look forward to it every week. 
Thank you so much, Mary. Um, there are a number of interesting things you bring up here. Um, we very well may look at uh, miraculous charismatic gifts in the future, uh, as well as charismatic gifts more generally. Um, most of the time when the Holy Spirit gives someone a gift, it doesn't manifest in a notably miraculous way. For example, um, based on my own self-assessment and my career path, I would say that my gift, or at least my primary spiritual gift, is teaching. And so that seems to be what I have the ability to do. Um, and as St. Thomas Aquinas put it, grace builds on nature. So frequently there is an element in human nature that's then elevated in some way by God's spiritual activity and used in his service. So presumably I would have some natural level of teaching of teaching ability, even if I wasn't a Christian, but then the spirit takes that natural ability and elevates it and uses it to his purpose. And the same thing can certainly be true of uh, if psychic functioning is real, if it really is a part of human nature, then the same thing could happen with that. And as I've as I've learned more about the research that's been done on psychic functioning, and just over time, looking at my own experience, the more I've become open to that possibility that there is a mixture of this stuff going on. In my own case, I've noticed, and I've talked about this on Catholic Answers Live, but I've noticed for a long time that I have a tendency to be reading or thinking about some really obscure subject within a day or two of being asked about it professionally. And I haven't done a numerical a statistical study to see if it exceeds chance, but it's something that's happened often enough. I've noticed it. And actually recently I did start keeping a spreadsheet of occasions where this occurred or where this has been occurring. And at some point in the future, I'll figure out how do I estimate the null hypothesis and then do a statistical test once I've gathered some more data. But I've noticed it happening in my case. And in the past, I've always just said, well, maybe if this if if this is beyond chance, if something unusual is going on here, you know, it it, it may just be God giving me a nudge supernaturally about something that I'm going to be asked about soon that I'll need to know about. And that could be all that's happening. It could be purely a supernatural nudge. But as I've learned more about the way psychic functioning is thought to work and the way research has been done on it, I've become more open to the possibility that this may be a case of grace building on nature, where maybe if if humans do have a limited precognitive ability Maybe that's part of what's happening here, and then God is using that for his purposes. Interestingly, we're going to have uh, some episodes where we discuss things along these lines coming up, in, uh, or at least we're going to have episodes with people who I've, who I've discussed these things with. Um, in January, we're going to have a pair of interviews I did with Major Bill Ray, who was the former uh, military head of the Fort Meade Psychic Spying Unit in the Stargate program in the 1980s. And uh, Major Ray is a Catholic. He's an active Catholic. And he was uh, back when he was working for the military. In fact, I, I forget if he told me it was the 70s or the 80s. I it, Probably 
the eighties, he said that he was in the he was active in the Catholic Charismatic movement, and one of his um, one of his priests uh, shared with him the idea that psychic functioning, you know, may be part of what the spirit is doing with us and so that these two things may be related and that psychic functioning may be playing a role in some charismatic phenomena like you mentioned with these people coming up with information about those they're going to be praying for also we have some additional episodes continuing our discussion with uh dr edwin may coming up in which um, we look at research that's been done on psychic functioning and that uh, that he has done and that suggests that we may have psychic functioning happening subconsciously on a regular basis as just part of how we navigate the world and that it's augmenting the decisions we make without us even being aware of it. And so there's some convergent research to that. All right. Uh, KDB wrote on YouTube, I love this bit as much as the April Fool's episodes. I somehow never notice it's April 1st and always go in with an open mind and then am delighted as the world tilts sideways and I get to be suspicious and figure out for myself that this is a hoax. And as a fellow lie avoider, no disrespect to those who come down on the other side of that theological debate, I love that Jimmy uses cleverness and mental reservations rather than outright lies to achieve his fun effect. In this case, I'm a fan of magician shows myself and was preparing a fish for dinner as I watched the first video. And not long into Jimmy's first trick, I was laughing out loud and cheering that he's goofing us. But that didn't spoil my enjoyment, and I looked forward to the later reveal. P.S. Dom was a great stooge. I won't take offense to that. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. Well, I was, I was, I was going to explain anyway um, <laughs> at the end, but a stooge is magic jargon for a confederate, for a person yes. who knows at least part of what's going on and is playing along. Of course, of course. Uh, he continues, I had assumed he was familiar with such tricks also and just guessed what was going on in real time while playing along so as not to spoil the trick for viewers. But I didn't guess that he was actually prepped with planted answers over the phone. Nice acting. P.S. Jimmy, I think you'd love Jonathan Creek, a British TV show about a magician's assistant who uses his know-how to solve complicated crimes. Thank you very much. I, uh, Based on your recommendation, I've checked out Jonathan Creek and been watching some of it, and it is quite interesting as a detective show. Jessica writes on Facebook, The Nine Times Table, it's phenomenal. Yes, uh, there. depending on the base number system you're using, different different little areas in math like the nine, multiple multiply something by nine and add the digits can have interesting properties that magicians can exploit uh, credo dm wrote on youtube polyhedral dice check npc and monster character cards and markers check choose your own adventure style story check i believe we just witnessed jimmy and dom playing a one-shot session of dungeons and dragons with jimmy as the dm and dom the pc Good job, Dom. Your character defeated the monsters and saved the baby damsel in distress. Jimmy's a great DM. <laughs> we should explain that. DM stands for Dungeon Master and PC stands for Player Character. Um, I, Dungeons & Dragons is an example of what's known as a role-playing game or an RPG. And actually, back in the day, I not only played a lot of RPGs, I also... Um, 
did work not so much as a dungeon master, but as what's called a game master, which is the same thing, but for games other than Dungeons and Dragons. So I have done a lot of work as a game master, and I've even helped design role-playing games. If you look in Chaosium's game Superworld, you'll see that I have a design credit as one of the co-designers for it. And in fact, just this last year over lockdown from COVID, uh, the original game designer, Steve Perrin, who recently passed away, contacted me and some others, and we started playtesting a new edition of Superworld, which may be coming out. So keep your eye out for that. Superworld, by the way, is a uh, superhero-based role-playing game. Awesome. Yeah, I play. I started replaying uh, Dungeons and Dragons again, coincidentally, online with some friends. You can actually do online D and D these days. It's amazing. Yeah, which would and we did something similar over lockdown. We were we were using a virtual um, tabletop environment and virtual dice and things like that. And it, this never would have been possible back in the eighties. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, magic edutainer wrote on YouTube. I love me some magic. Good on you, Jimmy. Very good. Thank you very much, Magic Edutainer. I happen to know who that is, and he is himself a professional magician, so I appreciate it very much. JJ on YouTube wrote, I really don't believe this stuff, and this episode didn't help. I do think there is intuition and deja vu, but the remote viewing, no. Psychics are also very sincere and knowledgeable and get together to make their skills better, but that still doesn't make them con men. Yeah, it doesn't make them con men, and it does. The fact they're sincere does not prove that psychic functioning is real either. Um, I respect folks who have a variety of different opinions on this, and so uh, your opinion here is quite welcome, JJ. S. Madrano wrote on YouTube: Only one question comes to mind: How do I make money off of this? Could I use my psychic abilities, like remote viewing and other predictive abilities, to make a buck? How do I get paid? Could I win the Powerball? How many times could I win it before people became suspicious? 20? Could I use my remote viewing to time travel into the past and find buried treasure? Could I remote view travel into the future and copy the designs of some futuristic invention and then create it myself? Could I future remote view cures for diseases? For me, it's all about helping humanity, at least this particular human in it. So, uh, Esmadrano, you're thinking along the lines of a lot of other people, including people in the remote viewing community. There has been, and we've mentioned this briefly in the past, but there have been projects where people would attempt to use remote viewing, particularly a form of it known as associative remote viewing, in order to figure out things like lottery numbers or the direction of the stock market or uh, sports betting situations and use it to actually make money. And in some cases, they've had a significant amount of success with that. So that is a real type of thing that happens in the remote viewing community. It is not easy. Um, and even when it works, there is a lot of work that has to go into it. So that's one reason you don't hear about it more, because a lot of people, even though they find success using associative remote viewing, they get to a point where they say, this is boring. I'd rather just make money the old fashioned way. <laughs> and and so uh, so there are some some limitations in terms of finding buried treasure or uh, pulling information like inventions or cures for diseases from the future that those kind of things also have been done. In fact, there have been uh, a number of of remote viewing psychic archaeology 
projects where they would use um, remote viewing to try to locate the remains of archaeological treasures or archaeological evidence. Uh, there's a famous, it's been done in Japan. It was also done in Egypt in part of what's called the Alexandria Project, which we'll talk about in the future. Um, I believe it's been done to try to find uh, I, mean, I know it's been done to find shipwrecks, but I think it may have been done to find shipwrecks with money on them. Um, and then there is also discussion of, uh, that in groups that I've, I've where I've sat in on where there has been discussion of how can we how can we use this to get information f- about future technological or biomedical uh, procedures. And to answer his question, my guess it would be three times you could win the Powerball before people got suspicious. If you win the Powerball three times, someone would be suspicious. <laughs> yeah, the the question isn't so much, though, are they suspicious, but do they stop you playing as a result of being suspicious? <laughs> do they take the money back? Uh, Katie Lovett wrote on YouTube, so the second test is a parlor trick that my husband uses all the time. I couldn't believe it when I heard it. The difference in the version he uses is that Once you pick a country, you then have to pick an animal that starts with the last letter of the country you pick, and then you have to pick a color that starts with the last letter of that animal. After the person picks their color, he then says, and remember, there are no orange kangaroos in Denmark. It gets them every time. Yeah, there are a bunch of different versions of this trick known as the uh, sometimes known as the gray elephants from Denmark trick. And you could, using that procedure, get orange kangaroos from Denmark. Um, It was a risk. So for people who may not have seen this episode recently, Dom and I do a couple of ostensible tests of psychic ability, but really they are magic tricks. They're a couple of mentalism tricks. And I reveal that fact after we've done them. And the reason we did it was to show this is the kind of thing that psychic researchers have to look out for and take into account when they need to design their experiments in a way that what we're doing here is not possible. And they'll even bring in professional magicians to help them do that sometimes. So, um, I wanted to use the the episode as an object lesson to show people the kind of thing that psychic researchers have to watch out for. And um, and I knew I was taking a risk that some people in the audience would have encountered versions of gray elephants from Denmark before. But it was difficult to find tests that are magic tricks that I could use in a way that would not raise the audience's suspicions about, is this just a trick too quickly? Because most of the time you're looking at tricks and okay, they like involve playing cards. And as soon as you're using playing cards, people are thinking, Oh, this is going to be a magic trick. And similarly there, most tricks are designed not to be passed off as psychic phenomena, but to be passed off as magic tricks in a performance. And so what I had to do was find tricks that I could reasonably recontextualize as a test rather than as a trick. And that meant stripping away the magic jargon and the magic performance elements and things like that. And so um, Gray Elephants from Denmark was one of the was one of the ones that I encountered that I could do that with, even though I knew some people would have encountered it before. Tony L wrote on YouTube, haven't finished the video video yet, but I'm picking Djibouti and Egret. 
I've already experienced the elephant in Denmark one before. Next time someone tries it on you, pick some wildly improbable animals and countries like Egret and Djibouti to turn the tables. For the first test, I noticed Jimmy got to choose how to lay out the cards after Dom picked even or odds, but it was only after the elephant in Denmark that I asked myself, how many cards were in that envelope at the end? Six? Three? Probably three. So Tony L is uh, is doing some really sharp thinking here. He he, he wrote this uh, comment before he'd finished the video. He did acknowledge that he'd seen gray elephants in Denmark before, so he knew that Denmark and elephants were going to be the target animals, and that's why he picked Djibouti and Egret instead. Um, and that's also why I pointed out in our reveal video where I showed how these tricks worked that you can cold read your way in you can cold do cold reading to error correct like if i said the the country you're thinking of is it in europe he would have had to say no because djibouti is in africa rather than europe and then that would have told me oh the country is probably djibouti or if i wanted to be really certain i could say is it in the caribbean because that would eliminate Dominican Republic. And so I could use these cold reading questioning techniques to figure out what country he's really thinking of if he's not going for the main one. And similarly, I could figure my way to Egret, although that would be a little more difficult using similar cold reading techniques. What is more interesting here, or even more interesting here, is the way he, he spotted what's going on in the Footwalker Ranch test that we did for you, Dom, because it hinges on me forcing a card on you or forcing three cards on you, which I did based on the way I fanned the cards out after you made your choice between eliminating the even cards and the odd cards. And so he spotted that that the uh, that it I didn't guarantee which way I was going to fan them out. And that might be relevant to the trick. And it was. He also spotted the other element, which is that the trick has three outs or three possible endings, which he interpreted in terms of me having three final reveal cards in the envelope. And if he then went on to watch the reveal video, he would have found out that wasn't the case. It did have three endings, but they weren't all different cards in the envelope. There was only one reveal card in the envelope. There was also a reveal card taped to the back of the envelope. And there was a reveal drawn on the back of one of the cards that Dom could have picked. So we did have three outs, but they weren't all in the form of cards in the envelope, which would have been hard to do because if there were still three cards in there, how would I be able to reach in and correctly pull out the right card without accidentally revealing the other two? It's safer magically to just have one card in the envelope and put the other two endings somewhere else. Okay. Old guy, old car guy on YouTube wrote, I chose the Chupacabra. I'm confused as hell. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I'm not sure which trick he was referring to, but neither the Chupacabra was not one of the options in Footwalker Ranch, and it wasn't one of the options in Gray Elephants from Denmark. So he, <laughs> he would have to be confused. You go way off. <laughs> ben Devick wrote on YouTube, I felt so surprised after you got both tests, and then my hopes and dreams were shattered. Still a good episode, though. Well, thank you, Ben. Uh, glad you enjoyed it. And just because these tests weren't authentic tests doesn't mean that Dom and I don't have psychic functioning. 
We didn't what? test that. <laughs> I'm working on it every day. MD wrote on YouTube, can't wait to try these on my friends and family. Enjoy it and uh, do your best to make them feel good and have a good time with it. Spock Glock on YouTube writes, I'm going to perform these tricks on my wife and make her think I'm the actor Gary Lockwood. When you do that, uh, just be sure that you're careful getting the mirrored contact lenses into your eyes for the glowing eye effect for uh, <laughs> Gary Lockwood. This is for people who may not recognize the reference. It's the second pilot of Star Trek where no man has gone before, where Gary Lockwood, who is playing the first officer of the Enterprise. This is before Spock is the first officer um, and a visiting scientist named. Oh, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Daner, Dane. something like that, something yeah, like that. Like that. Uh, they both get psychic powers and go crazy. Yes. That won't happen to me, Jimmy and me. No. <laughs> <laughs> Flying Car 100 writes on YouTube, for the first test, my guess was that the foot in Footwalker was there to make them pick Bigfoot. So that's an interesting thought. It had not occurred to me. Now, Dom did pick the Bigfoot, and it is possible that the foot in Footwalker could have served as priming to subconsciously nudge him in that direction. And I mm -hmm. couldn't rule that out as part of why he picked Bigfoot. Um it wasn't my intent, though. I, I I was just riffing on Skinwalker Ranch, and since we walk on our feet, a comedic version of of Skinwalker Ranch would turn into Footwalker Ranch <laughs> because that's what we actually walk on. I actually was thinking about that afterwards, and I I actually feel like that I was influenced by the name to pick Bigfoot. I think that was in there. So, uh -huh. so we went on to something. Yeah, as I mentioned in the reveal video, what I was hoping is that he would, because I drew a TARDIS on one of the cards, and Dom and I are on Secrets of Doctor Who, I was hoping that would prime him to pick the Time Traveler. Yeah. And, and that would have allowed me to go through the other cards and show there was nothing on the back of them. But when I turned around the Time Traveler card, it would have had the the baby reveal. Reveal. Mm, that would have been good. Yeah. All right. So that's all of our mysterious feedback for this time. What, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines? Well, we have a strange natural world theme. So we're looking at two strange things from the natural world. The first one, uh, they've been doing some genetic testing on California condors. Now, California condors are a formerly very, very endangered species. They got down a few decades ago to like 20 something birds that were still alive and as a result of protecting them with the endangered species act they've now built it up to like 500 or so birds of this species and they monitor them carefully and they do genetic tests on them and recently they found a couple of virgin births in the california condor population now virgin births are something that can happen in nature where without the involvement of a male a female can give birth this is a phenomenon known as parthenogenesis and it happens in certain species of reptiles and amphibians it can happen in birds but it is very rare in birds. So this was an anomaly. They did not know that California condors can have parthenogenesis before. Um, it often happens when a species is under stress as kind of a survival strategy when males are scarce. So it's like if the normal sexual reproduction isn't possible for some reason, they shift and can have parthenogenesis. Um, in this case, what they found was a couple of male baby 
California condors were not the biological sons of the male bird that you would have thought was their father. So you had nesting pairs of an adult male and adult female. And even though there's an adult male there, he's not the father of the male chicks and of these two chicks. And neither are any of the other birds in the population so far as they could tell, because they're monitoring the whole population. So these and the the genetics of these two male chicks did match their mothers. So these look like cases where the mothers, even though they're living with a male, they still went on to have parthenogenic chicks, which raised a question of, is this happening more than we realize? Where where mother, you know, females in this species are getting pregnant on their own more than we realize. And we're just assuming that the male is the father. Um, So that's something they still have to figure out. Now, something the listener may be wondering is if these chicks are only the product of their mothers, how can they be male? Because it doesn't it wouldn't work this way in humans in humans. Now, um Apart from a miracle like the virgin birth of Jesus, <laughs> any if a woman accidentally released two eggs at once and they fused to make a baby, somehow um, the baby would be guaranteed to be female because each of the eggs would carry an X chromosome. And then when the two X fuse, the two eggs fuse, it would have a double X genetic pattern, which in humans means female. So if parthenogenesis did occur in humans without a miracle, the result would always be female. So the fact Jesus is a male means there must have been a miracle here. Well, you would think then, okay, so if California condor mothers released somehow the right cells to produce fertilized eggs, why would the chick be a male? The answer is because they don't encode sex on their genes the way we do. Um, In humans, we have the two standard genetic patterns are XX and XY. If you're XX, you're a female. If you're XY, you're a male. And so only males can contribute the, uh, the Y chromosome. And so in a normal situation in humans, it's the father that actually determines the sex of the child. If the father transmits an X chromosome, the child will be a girl. If the father transmits a Y chromosome, the child will be a boy. And then the mother has her own X chromosome that she contributes. Well, that's not how birds do it. Instead of having X and Y sex chromosomes, they have Z and W chromosomes. And the pattern is different. ZZ is male and ZW is female. So in the case of a female California condor, she's got a Z and a W chromosome. So if she transmits to the offspring two Zs, because she's got two Zs, she's got a Z. So if she sends down two copies of the Z into the fertilized egg, it will produce a male. And so it is possible for California condors, but not humans, to non-miraculously have a male offspring parthenogenically. The second weird nature, as if that wasn't weird enough, uh 
there is there's always reports of Bigfoot happening and sometimes people get recordings of Bigfoot. And so, you know, whatever that may be. And we've done we've talked about Bigfoot before, um, but uh, there is a, there are reports of not just Bigfoot sounds being captured on tape, but actual Bigfoot language. So check out the link and see what you think of uh, of whether they've caught Bigfoot language on tape. Uh, longtime listeners will know I'm skeptical of the idea there's an undiscovered large primate in North America, but see what you think. All right. So we would love to hear your mysterious feedback. What are your theories about the issues we've covered in this episode? Well, you can let us know online by visiting sqpn.com slash mysterious or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page. You can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world or leave a YouTube comment. Well, that uh, brings us to the end of this episode. Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're going to be going back in time to December 7th, 1941, and look at the attack on Pearl Harbor that brought the U.S. into World War II. On the 80th anniversary of the attack, the theories are eerily reminiscent of 9-11, and we'll be considering whether high officials in the U.S. government either made the Pearl Harbor attack occur on purpose or let it happen on purpose. And no matter what your current view is, the answer we'll reveal is probably not something that you're expecting. Excellent. So we hope you've enjoyed this patron's question show. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is only possible because of the generosity of our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to support Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World and have your questions answered on future shows for patrons, go to sqpn.com give. Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Fearvento Law, PLLC, specializing in adult guardianships and conservatorships, probate and estate planning matters, accepting clients throughout Michigan, taking into account your individual health care, financial, and religious needs. Visit fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>